Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast at the New Books Network. I'm Andrew Miller of the U.S. Naval Academy, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kristen Harkness, a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of St. Andrews. She's here to discuss her book, When Soldiers Rebel, Ethnic Armies and Political Instability in Africa. Her book examines the causes of military coups in Africa, in particular focusing on the relationship between the ethnic composition of armies and political instability. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the book's origin story, so to speak. Where did the idea come from and how did it ultimately come into fruition? So that's a very, very long story, um, which might take me a minute to, or two to get through. Um, if you want to really uh, go back to the, the origins of the book, um, it was when... I think the initial curiosity and the questions and the impetus came from um, when I was studying abroad as an undergraduate. Uh, And that was in Buenos Aires in Argentina in 2001. So I'm going to date myself a bit here. And I, when I, when I arrived um, in Buenos Aires as this like bright eyed, uh, naive undergraduate who had never been outside of the United States before, actually. I didn't, you know, I had never, um, and maybe I'd been to Canada, but, you know, I had never really been outside the U.S. And, and when I landed there, the, the country was in a turmoil. All the universities were on strike. So I couldn't go uh, to normal classes like I was supposed to. There were classes being held in the streets. There were daily protests. There, you know, against... Um, the economic distress that the country was experiencing, but also a proposed IMF restructuring package. And uh, amidst all of this turmoil, there were calls in the newspapers for the military to intervene again. And you have to remember that this is only about 15 years-ish since the military had stepped down from power and since the dirty war in Argentina, where 300 uh, where 30,000, sorry, 30,000 people um, had been disappeared. And so this, this was a very kind of uh, tense period uh, in Argentinian politics. And it got kind of so bad in that they actually called out the military to contain order. And I was walking down the street, the side street one day, and I came face to face with a tank. Um, that was just kind of rolling down the street and there were, you know, no one was firing on anyone. There was no real danger, but it was still this startling thing to see a rotating tank turret on a city street. And it felt at the time, like there was a real possibility of, of a coup and a military intervention. And so I, my, my period of time studying there, and I was eventually able to go to my classes, but my, you know, my period of study abroad ended, I, I returned to the U.S. 
um, that summer. And then the, the government collapsed. And I think there were five presidents in one or two weeks or something extraordinary like that after I left. And this and but the military did not intervene. They did not step in. And um, that to me was this kind of phenomenal and interesting puzzle of, you know, why? Why why in a country with such a tumultuous history, why so much military intervention? And then why did it stop? And and how did they democratize? How did they get over that hurdle? And, you know, many, many, many years later, I'm I'm in graduate school, um, you know, working on my PhD. I've switched over to African politics, but these questions of military intervention stayed with me. And so I started looking that looking at that in um, in the African context, in the history of decolonization and independence and democratization. Um, and that's really where, where the book came from. And probably it was almost two decades after the questions first came to me that I actually managed to publish it. Wow. Wow. So could you describe the book's main theory for us? Like, so how does it help us understand when and why these coups occurs? And as you mentioned, in you looked at Africa in particular. Um, so why those coups occurs in the in the post-independence period? And then as your book talks about well, well beyond the, the post-independence period as well during the Cold War, etc. Right. So I I would I would start by prefacing the whole argument with um, with an emphasis on coups as tactics. So military coups, and I look specifically at military coups in the book. So when a faction of usually the officer corps um, leverages its its resources and position in the military to seize or help seize power. Uh, and and as tactics, coups are perpetrated for many ends, right? They're not ends in and of themselves. They're, they seize power for lots of different reasons. And so the patterns that I analyze in the book and that I found in the book, that, that's one reason and one big driving force behind military coups in Africa and potentially beyond, but it's not the only one. So I don't want to, I don't want to make the claim that I'm explaining kind of all the coups uh, that occurred in these periods. But what the book argues um, at the most basic level is that building or dismantling systems of ethnic privilege in, in state institutions and particularly the security forces causes reactionary violence, that, that these coups are efforts to preserve the status quo. Um, so in when we think about the decolonization period, we're really talking about a period in time in which uh, these military institutions were created and they were built. Uh, not from scratch, there were colonial militaries that uh, that they they were kind of constructed out of, and that's important. But it was largely a period of institutional formation. And so here we're looking at the what turned out to be in many African countries, the construction of what I call ethnic armies, or armies where co-ethnics of the president are recruited in into the military and especially into the high ranks of the officer corps to secure the military's loyalty. 
And so where we see this, where we see this effort to construct the ethnic and ethnically based institutions, where you have an existing officer corps that's diverse, right? There are officers of other ethnic backgrounds. You see resistance to that project, right? They're fighting for their place in that institution to not be purged, to not be um, fired or forcibly retired or arrested or what, what have you. Um, and that kicks off these cycles of, of coups as ethnic factions within the military start kind of fighting against each other to um, prevent their own exclusion or exclude the other groups. And that's, and that's a lot of the book takes a deep dive into colonial militaries, into what they looked like and their transformation into national armies, the, the choices that leaders made on, the, on how they were going to build loyalty in those militaries and how that choice to do so on an ethnic basis led to cycles of instability um, when you know, that choice uh, was mismatched with the inherited colonial officer corps. And then later, sorry, I'm going on. This is not a simple explanation of, of the argument. But then, then later I look at the flip side of that, at the dismantling of these ethnic armies and of these systems of ethnic privilege. And I chose the period of democratization in the 1990s to examine that in the African context. And it, it's a very similar um, dynamic where, uh, but maybe flip. So now you have a legacy of ethnic armies, of these uh, stacked security institutions, and reformers come into power, right? Democracy brings, um, it brings ethnic rotation in power, it brings reform, it brings diversification, um, and it brings security sector reform. And that deeply threatens these entrenched systems of ethnic privilege that then react violently to preserve their control over the security institutions and, and everything that that comes with, the power, the patronage, um, often you know, access to vast uh, state resources. Now, you talked about the construction of these armies by the colonial powers. Could you just dive into that a little bit more what are the various types of uh, ethnic compositions that uh, colonial powers made for the officer corps in in their colonies, and why did they why did they create ethnically diverse militaries in some contexts, uh, but ethnically stacked uh, military officer corps in in other contexts? That's a very complicated question. Um, so I think I think what often uh, gets lost in discussions of colonialism is the diversity of practice, that these are not monolithic um, institutions. And, and there is a lot of local variation in what administrators were doing. So, uh, so a lot... So something called martial race doctrine is shaping a lot of what um, colonizing powers are doing when they're recruiting colonial militaries. Um, and maybe I should step back and, and say, you know, give a little bit of a picture of what colonial militaries look like. For their first, they're not... Um, 
they're recruited from particular territories, but they don't belong to territories. So uh, the Kenyan battalion of the King's African Rifles are recruited from the colony of Kenya, but they don't say belong to the governor of Kenya. Um, similarly, the Tierreur Senegalese is uh, recruited from across French West Africa, and it is a regionally directed and oriented institution. So colonial militaries were very much what I'm trying to say. They were regional forces, and they didn't belong to the territories that then inherited them later. Um, pieces were broken off of these regional forces and used as the starting blocks for national militaries during the decolonization process. And martial race doctrine comes in through the British. Uh, it's uh, Frederick Lugard is the, uh, he's got some very uh, different, he moves around a bit in roles, but he's a very important British colonial administrator in Nigeria. And he learns about, he learns these things through his service in India. Martial race doctrines, of course, starts in India after um, a disastrous mutiny there. And the British decide that they need to recruit loyal security forces. And they get this idea in their heads that certain ethnic groups are more politically loyal than others and are also more naturally fit for military service and the military life. And they bring this idea down into Africa through Lugard in Nigeria. And, and they start then thinking about uh, colonial militaries as um, a loyal colonial institution that's going to be separated from uh, the political side. So the growing civil service, the political parties, um, and they kind of get this idea that different groups should be in politics than in the military. Um, and that's going to prevent loyalty issues for them. Uh, and so they, they're typically recruiting particular ethnic groups into these regional military forces. Um, these are the martial races. And this practice spreads across uh, British colonial Africa. It also starts getting picked up by the French, but the French have a different idea of service that's coming out of their own um, history. And Fade Herb, who's a, you know, a governor in, in French West Africa, he's actually like a Jacobin revolutionary. And, and he, he starts uh, commissioning African officers in the mid-19th century. And there's this real idea of assimilation and equality um, that shapes the early French forces. In, in a different way. But over time, they start looking a lot more like the British ones. So by the time you get to decolonization in some of the French colonies, you have very strong ideas of a military service in certain ethnic communities over others. But, but you do see these differences between um, the French and the British. Uh, other, the Belgians, on the other hand, don't commission any African officers anywhere. Um, so, so the Congo gains independence without a single African officer. So it's not that you have a diverse officer corps, it's just that you have no officer corps. And that's also true in some of the, um, what you might call the French concessionary colonies. 
So what becomes Central African Republic and Chad, right? These are run basically as mineral concession companies during colonization. And they, and they don't have any, they, don't, they maybe have one officer that they get from the regional forces. So your, your book is very convincing in demonstrating that leaders matter and their decisions have broad ramifications for for, for a long time in the, in, in the most cases. So thinking about this post-independence period, can you walk us through the differences between how the African leaders in that period dealt with these military structures from the colonial powers if there was a, um, uh, if there was a military in place to, to restructure and how their various approaches impacted uh, the, the likelihood of coups? Right. Um, so the the cases I I walk I walk through in depth in the book are uh, Sierra Leone, Ghana, Cameroon, and Senegal. And and uh, so I'll I guess I'll talk about those those ones in brief. Um, and I, I picked those to represent a diversity of choices. So you you have two of the countries that chose to build ethnic armies right from the beginning. Uh, that's um, Cameroon and Sierra Leone. And then you have two countries that tried to build national armies, right? Inclusive uh, national armies, nationally representative armies at the beginning. Um, and that's Ghana and Senegal. And they have uh, different different outcomes um, I, on both, both choices. So I wanted to show that you know, it wasn't simply that if you built ethnically loyal institutions, um, that was a simple path to, to kind of autocratic stability. Uh, or if you built inclusive institutions, that that, you know, had a particular outcome. I wanted to show the interaction between the choice and kind of what the conditions that the leader inherited. So in, in that, those two countries that chose to build ethnic armies in Cameroon um, and Sierra Leone, you have different, you get different colonial office, officer corps that they inherit. So in Cameroon, you basically don't have an officer corps before 1958 um, for, for, Various reasons. Uh, Cameroon's not uh, partly; it's a UN trustee territory. It's not a typical French colony, but it's not it's not contributing much to uh, the Central African Regional French Security Forces, colonial forces, and so they don't have any existing officers that that are coming back. They're they're working um, with the French to train the first cohort of officers at the very end of the colonial period. And so Amadou Ahijo is the kind of leader uh, before independence, and he's going to become the president upon independence. And he works very closely with the French to, to build an ethnically stacked officer corps just right from the beginning. So he doesn't face any resistance to that because there's nobody to resist. Uh, in Sierra Leone, on the other hand, um, military recruitment is initially left in the hands of the British. The first president 
Milton Margai. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't touch the military. He doesn't want to really have anything to do with it. And he just kind of lets the British continue to recruit and train and promote. And there's a very high percentage of British officers still in that military in the early to mid-1960s. And it's when he dies and his brother takes over power, um, Sir Albert Margai, that things start to change. And Albert decides that he's going to build up a, a Mende, um, build up Mendes in the officer corps and, and to keep kind of, you know, Sierra Leone has a very strong ethnic political parties at this time. There's a lot of tension um, in elections. And so you start to see him transforming the officer corps, but it's, actually an officer corps that comes out of the colonial period and is dominated by other groups, right? The Mende weren't included in the martial races. And so most of the officers are of other ethnic backgrounds and they, they resist this restructuring. And you eventually it kicks off. Um, it's a complicated story around the time of the elections and you get this real fight and struggle for power between Sierra Leone's ethnic groups, the kind of the Mende versus the Northern and Alliance of Northern groups. And that, that filters down into the military, right? It comes in through the elections into the military and the factions are kind of fighting against each other and weeding each other out until eventually you get a very, very narrow ethnically staffed military of one particular Northern group. And then things stabilize um, under a autocratic government until until the civil wars later in time. So that that's the story of those two. I don't know if you want me to then get into the other two cases. No, I think that's no, that's good. That gives yeah. us like a really good sense of the the theory. Um, I want to I want to move into the research design. So how you went about testing testing your theory. Um, what what was the research design that you selected, and 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 why did you take that approach? So the the book has a mixed methods approach, um, and and it it combines statistical analysis uh, to show some general patterns with uh, really in depth case studies that are largely based on archival research. So there are a number of methodological choices there. I think I wanted um, kind of I wanted to do that quantitative work because I wanted to show the generalizability to say this is not just the cases I selected. This is these I, we can explain some pretty big patterns in African civil military relations and African politics. Um, now, unfortunately, there was no data existing on the types of things I, I wanted to analyze, which, which are ethnic practices within the military. So I had to go collect that, which led to some other methodological choices in my selection of particular time periods to analyze. Because I, at the time, I didn't have the resources to collect broad cross-national time series data on ethnic recruitment practices in African militaries. Um, I wanted to publish the book like someday 
And that data collection project, especially when I started out as a PhD student, that was that was beyond my capabilities. I've actually since done that. I've, I've published that data set earlier this year, but it took me three years beyond the book to continue filling in the gaps and, and expanding that data. So I, you know, I strategically chose particular windows of time to go collect the data in and then and then do those cross-national tests in the book. The case studies, I think, are the heart of the book. And I thought those were um, really necessary to, sh- to trace and to show the causal mechanisms of the argument, but to also give that richness and the complexity of what was going on. Um, and so I, you know, for each of these uh, two parts, we might say the theory, the building of ethnic armies, and then the dismantling of ethnic armies, I, I, I chose... Um, a set of case studies to uh, compare against each other and then process trace within. And on the, the building up, you know, I, I chose the four cases um, I told you about, and I, I, I did some, you know, careful matching on other variables and thinking about, you know, making these cases quite comparable. Um, and then, and those were the Ghana, Sierra Leone, uh, Cameroon, and Senegal, those four cases uh, in two pairs that look at that building up of ethnic armies. And then I chose kind of a three-way comparison to look at the dismantling of ethnic armies and the reactionary violence that that provoked. And those ended up um, being all West African, uh, Senegal, uh, Benin, and Nigeria. And then uh, there was a whole issue over where to get information. Right. The what what I am writing about is very politically sensitive. It's very clandestine. Um, And so it you know, I had to make choices over how I was going to collect that information for the case studies. And I I chose to work predominantly in archives and I ended up going to archives in five different countries. So in Africa, I went and looked at the Kenyan National Archives, which have records for British East Africa. So I was looking a lot at the colonial period and the initial decolonization, uh, where they have very, actually very good records. And then in Senegal and Dakar, in the Senegalese National Archives, where they, they again, house the records for the Tireurs Senegalese, for the broad um, West African uh, colonial military forces and, you know, the early independence period. And these were also at the time, you know, at least somewhat democratized countries where record access was easier. And then I also went to archives in Britain, France, and the United States. And there I was looking at colonial records, but I was also looking at intelligence reports, diplomatic files, um, and military attache reports. Uh, Especially the French and the British still had embedded military officers within African militaries, in some cases up through the early 1980s. And they would send via diplomatic pouch, really in-depth kind of reporting on what was going on in those countries, on what was going on in the militaries, which they had really good access to. And they would send um, flurries of diplomatic telegrams and cables when there were coups. 
just flurries of them back to London and Paris. And so you can look at these records, um, obviously, you know, understanding the the historical context in which they're being generated, but you can look at them and actually get a lot of information that you not, can't necessarily get from, you know, authoritarian governments that are practicing severe ethnic privilege and exclusion. That, that, that's really interesting, the, the approach you took where you have a data set where you, you tested it in the book, and then it sounds like you've extended that data set uh, afterwards. So that seems like a, a really good opportunity potentially to test your theory out of sample to, to, to see if it applies. Now, did you, did you do that? And if so, did you find that the dynamics uh, that you found in the book applied to these later periods? So, so yeah, um, it was, uh, I have collected that data and I'm, I'm working on a couple substantive articles, uh, now that, that kind of carry forward this research agenda. But of course in them, I I have to count for my own theory. And so, you know, I, I have run the broad cross national, uh, time series data with the, with kind of the core theory of the book. And that was a terrifying moment, of pressing that button, like entering that command in R. And yes, it holds, um, is the like, it holds very, very strongly, actually, um, which which was the, the gratifying moment. But, you know, even if, uh, even if there had been no result or, or a weakness, um, I wouldn't necessarily take, have taken that as undermining the core insights of the book, because again, I do, I do view coups as tactics and um, that, that are committed for many reasons. And especially as we move forward in time, um, and we move into the present day, the the legacies of these colonial armies and the early early independence choices of those leaders that, that should fade over time. You would hope that that things change. And we don't have as many ethnically stacked militaries today as we did in the 1960s or 70s or 80s. There are still a fair number out there. I think it's around 35% currently in Africa are ethnically stacked. And you have others that maybe the leadership doesn't match the kind of identity of the army anymore, but they're still dealing with that legacy institution, right? So you don't have ethnic stacking, as we might call it, because it's not a loyalty mechanism anymore. The leader's not doing it. It's not intentional. It's not matched up. But that leader is sitting there looking over at this situation, this very precarious situation of being from a different ethnic group than a historically stacked military that could decide it doesn't want to be reformed or it's too fearful of reform and seize power at kind of any moment. And that's a problem. For sure. So let's say you're you're advising the the African Union and um, they ask they ask you to come, you know, speak to them and they, they want to take a more proactive approach to uh, preventing uh, preventing coups. So I'm sure as as most of us know, last year in 20, 2021, um, there is six coup or coup attempts uh, in Africa. So there's seemed to be a, a 
somewhat of a little bit of a resurgence. So let's say the African Union's asking asking you to advise them, give them advice on how they can be more proactive on preventing these coups. Um, what would be what would be your uh, like core piece of advice to them? Right, Sarah. I I actually did some um, analysis on that that mini wave of coups, and I you know my 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 insights or my analysis were that there are basically two driving forces behind that wave. Um, one was combat grievances. So we have just rising violence in, in Africa right now, especially across the Sahel. I think it was the worst year for a very long time for fatalities, um, combat and war and civilian fatalities. And so you have, you have, un, you have under-resourced and under-equipped um, armies being asked to, to fight in, in very difficult combat circumstances, and they are prone to grievances and mutinies, and those mutinies can turn into coups. And we saw that in Burkina, um, and we saw that in Mali. Now, the other part of it, in, in my opinion, was the, the struggles over democratization that I talk about in the book, is that you had a, actually a wave, uh, which could be seen in a positive light, of attempted democratization in countries that, that had very little experience of that, Niger, Guinea, um, to name two, Sudan, that these are, these are all countries with a long legacy of authoritarianism, with a long legacy of ethnically stacked militaries, and you get a popular protest or you get a democratic opening, and they're attempting um, to manage that transition. And, uh, and the military decides at some point in that transitional process not to support democratization anymore and to kill the project. Uh, and, I, and, and I do think the dynamics in the book help us understand some of those contexts. Now, do you think... That had no advice in it, by the way. I'm very <laughs> sorry for that. So, sure, no problem. So that, that's a little bit... Um, to get back to your original question, what, what would I advise like the African Union or the, all the Western states providing security force assistance in these areas? Um, you know, I think the combat grievance side is potentially easier to address because that's a question sometimes of, of resourcing and, and getting the units you're asking to fight, getting them proper equipment, proper training, proper pay, proper medical care in the field of just kind of, a, a, of addressing some of those um, grievances so that they don't spiral out into a seizure of power. The political side is a lot more difficult. Um, and, you know, I think it's especially more difficult if you're not willing to put boots on the ground, is that when you have democratic reformers um, that, that come into these democratizing situations, they, they often want to reform the security sector. And they, they want to um, alleviate that future coup threat. But, but it's, a, it's a paradox. It's a catch-22 because the very reforms that you need to make this safe for democracy in the long term are going to provoke reactionary violence and potentially unseat your government. And so they need help and they need protection. 
Um, and, and that requires boots on the ground, not a lot. Um, it doesn't actually take a lot to provide some presidential security. And that would help a great deal if, if you actually did uh, allow some time and space for, for these new governments to actually go in and reform the security sector by putting advise and assist teams and embedding them in these military institutions so that at the very least they can observe what's going on and give forewarning of a potential coup. Now, do you think that the former colonial powers have a, have a role to, to play here, right? So, I mean, your book demonstrates clearly that they are part of the source of instability given the ethnic stacking of the of the militaries so should they be uh assisting in some way or perhaps it's better if they just kind of stay at it what's your what's your view on that i think it depends a lot on how these powers are viewed domestically um if if their aid and help is going to cause so much resentment that it becomes counterproductive, then no, they shouldn't be the ones doing it. Um, but that that's not always the case. And I can, you know, I can think specifically of the old uh, BMAT teams, the British military advising and training teams that went in and helped with the military reform and integration processes in places like South Africa, um, Sierra Leone, uh, and some other post-conflict and post-authoritarian uh, situations where they, they did a lot of good and they helped. Um, so ultimately, my belief is that these sorts of military reform efforts are, are they are a struggle. They are dangerous and risky. They're, and they're a battle that has to be pursued and won domestically. And the foreign aid and intervention has to be wanted. We can't we can't go in and impose it. Um, that does more harm than good. But but where people want that aid and assistance, and I think actually a lot of governments do. The when uh, when Tuadro was elected in the Central African Republic, and and he uh, things are going very 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 far south there right now, and and he's probably lost his uh, reform proclivities. But when he was first elected, he desperately wanted help and assistance, uh, uh, including with security sector reform, and it was not forthcoming. Nobody would help. And that was a lost moment uh, where we could have done potentially done some good. And I think the problem... Um, in Western aid and assistance is that we always seem to want to go to the worst places that, that, that are the, that don't necessarily want the aid and the assistance or that misuse it. And we often ignore the pleas of, of, of true reformers and of governments who, who do want the assistance, but maybe aren't as, as bad off. So we're pouring tons of money into Somalia, but where is the aid and assistance for Benin right now? I mean, Benin is on the brink of a massive influx of jihadi insurgent groups from the north. It's on the brink of losing um, its democratic momentum. And, and where is the help and assistance to stabilize them? 
Good. So now, now I want to turn to a little bit <clears throat> talking about just research and writing, uh, writing for the book. So what, what was your day-to-day process for, for writing? What was it, uh, what was it like in the, the archives? Uh, and, you know, how did you uh, use that time, you know, as efficiently as possible to build this, you know, really, really incredible data set? So the day-to-day in the archives depends on which archive you're in. Um, It's very different to work in the archives in Kenya versus the British National Archives at Kew. Um, In Kenya, there were, you know, there was a real issue with with resourcing um, in the National Archive at the time I went, and this was quite a long time ago, so I'm not saying this is true now. At the time that I went, you couldn't um, take digital photographs of documents. So, and there were real, there were strict limitations on how many records you could have up in a day. You couldn't hold records overnight. So my daily process was kind of going in first thing in the morning, requesting my um, three files I was allowed to get that day, and then going to um, the coffee shop you know, down the street for three hours and doing other work while I waited for those records to come up, come back in the afternoon, sit down, read the dossiers, and I had to take notes by hand. And anything that I wanted to preserve, um, really wanted to preserve, you had to get a photocopy, um, had to ask for a photocopy, and there were, uh, that cost money and there were some limitations on that. So mostly you're kind of writing notes on the documents and then maybe replicating or, you know, taking quotes and replicating tables um, as accurately as possible in those notes. When I go to the British National Archives, which it was a real uh, kind of boon to my research moving over to the UK because now I'm a four and a half hour express train ride from central London, uh, that you know, the, the Brit- working in Q is wonderful. They're the most efficient archive I've ever been in. You, you know, files come up very quickly. You have a little cubby hole. You can request up to 21 files at once, uh, although you can only bring three to the table. They've got camera stands on the desk that you just kind of screw your camera into. And you can kind of go and be uh, very efficient in in requesting dossiers and, um, and, and getting through them. And for me, it kind of depends on the time I have for a trip, what that work looks like at the desk. If I've got a very short time for a trip, um, I'll just photograph, you know, I'll research my dossiers in advance. I'll put in the requests and I will basically just photograph for eight, 10 hour, however long the archive is open. And and Q has late nights, which is nice. So two days a week, you can stay extra hours. And that's, I mean, that's exhausting in a physical way because you're kind of standing and hunched and it's really cold in the archives. Always like always bring a sweater. Um, But if I have more time, if I'm there for a longer trip and I have a grant or the budget to do that, I will sit and read through the dossier and then take photographs of things that are important because so much in an archival folder is not important. It's a lot of paper (laughs) and a lot of irrelevant paper. And so it is, I feel, a trade-off in kind of, you know, you either end up taking photographs of a lot of things that don't need 
need to be photographed and then sorting through that later, or you sort through it at the desk, but then that's kind of time you, you see less, fewer files and you, you know, you're able to kind of get through less in a day. I'm surprised a lot of it's at the British archives, at least is it's not digitized at this point, or it's still, still paper. Not the African record, colonial records. No, they are, they Mm. are going through massive digitization projects, but you have to understand the volume of records they're working through. And they're, they've started with the records that are of most interest to the public. So they kind of started with military service records. So people can go look at, you know, their great grandfather's war, you know, war, service record and things like that. So they're slowly but surely digitizing. Um, But no, none of the files that I have needed thus far have been digitized. All right. Well, hopefully, hopefully soon. So zooming out, zooming out a little bit, if you could change, let's say, just like anything about how research is done in comparative politics, um, what would that be, right? Do you have any sort of broad kind of uh, advice for the disciplined or or just researchers who engage in, in studies of not necessarily just coup d'etats, but just in general uh, comparative politics? Yeah, that, again, that's a tough question. I mean, I think what I've been feeling lately is that I don't, I don't like the pressure of quantity of churning out. I feel that good comparative work is slow and it takes time. It takes time, uh, especially multi-methods research. It takes time to learn a context. It takes, it takes time to sift through thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of records. It takes time to build a data set appropriately, right? To, to make it transparent and replicable, to, to properly source it and, and write out narratives. And, and that kind of very slow, careful work, it produces, I think, the highest quality of research, but it's so under-rewarded. Um, in political science right now. I mean, I think comparative politics is better than other subfields, but I see this pressure on junior scholars and, and I'm fortunate to have kind of made it through doing this kind of work and gotten a permanent job and gotten the equivalent of tenure and not had that held against me too much. But I see the pressure that junior scholars are under um, to publish and publish quickly. And I think that's leading to uh, to problems uh, in the field. And I see books come out that have basic errors in, in context of getting the geography of a country wrong, of getting kind of... Uh, and that... That makes that makes me very sad because I don't think these are I don't think these scholars are unintelligent or couldn't do that work to a higher standard. I think they're just under such pressure to get things out the door quickly. And and I don't like that. Hmm. All right. So just wrapping up here, you, you alluded to it earlier, but can you talk a little bit about what you're working on now? 
Um, and generally what you see as the so-called next frontier in the study of coup d'etats, what are those burning questions that uh, scholars should be, should be focusing on? Uh, so I'm, I'm working on a lot of things right now. Um, but I've, I've recently put out this data set expanding, um, you know, getting that out into the public and expanding my data on ethnic recruitment practices into African militaries. I'm working on some associated papers, um, looking at <laughs> does this work as a form of coup proofing or does it just kind of backfire um, and cause a lot of instability and violence? Um, and I'm working kind of on other papers on coups and democratization and looking at you know, some of the long-term prospects for democratization and democratic consolidation. Uh, coups are sometimes put out there as a potential solution to deeply entrenched authoritarianism. Um, I'm not fully convinced that's the case. So that's a burning question that I'm working on is like, you know, is in these deeply authoritarian contexts, is this the only way out of that? Um, or are there better routes than military coups? Um, I'm also, out of the book project, I'm very intrigued by questions of autocratic power consolidation, uh, and part of that is coup proofing, and looking at how ethnicity ties into that. And that's moving beyond just the security sector, but to look at practices of ethnic manipulation across state institutions and looking at how authoritarian leaders leverage and appeal to ethnic identity to first take power and then consolidate power. And and that's where I'm thinking that my next book project is going, is, is really moving out of a narrower focus on militaries and civil military relations to looking at broader patterns um, in African autocracies in, in their manipulation of ethnic identity. Um, and then kind of a third stream of research that, that I'm just starting to publish on is on security force assistance. And that gets into the policy implications of all of this money that we're pouring into counterterrorism um, in the Sahel and in other parts of Africa is what is that doing given the types of militaries we're assisting? Um, and we are assisting autocratic militaries and we're assisting ethnically stacked militaries. Great. Well, I look forward to reading reading all that. Uh, so thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts and insight with us today. We very much appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was fun to talk about the book. Once again, the book is When Soldiers Rebel, Ethnic Armies and Political Instability in Africa by Dr. Kristen Harkness.